namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhutang dhammang sankhang namasami so today is a very special day, as you can witness and appreciate this this very ancient ceremony. It's always impressed me every year. This is my 41st Vasa as a bhikkhu. Now, it's quite a long time. And uh, 41 years of katina ceremonies. <laughs> and... <laughs> But it's always very moving because uh, it is a, a beautiful ceremony and, and then it brings much joy to everyone involved because uh, the generosity of the lay community, uh, their interest and respect is, is greatly appreciated by the Sangha because uh, our lives are, our way of life is, our way of life which we intentionally become dependent on the generosity of others. This is one of our reflections uh, every day that we remember that we are sustained by the goodness and generosity of, of others. And it's always been interesting to me when I first ordained, uh, I didn't really understand that. Being an American, I'm, I was brought up to be independent, not to be dependent on anyone. So my cultural background and personality formed around, you know, I can look after myself, I don't need anyone else. And then when I began to recognize what I'd got myself into by becoming a bhikkhu, <laughs> it was a bit of a, a surprise, because <laughs> it hadn't really, really sunk in until after I'd already ordained. But then the fact that the Buddha established this and and so I a, my respect for the Buddha always, uh, uh, you know, I said, why did he establish an order of monastics who's, who were de totally dependent on the kindness of others? And then I thought, well, it's lasted 2,500 years. That's pretty good. No trust fund, no <laughs> foundation, just the goodness and generosity of others. And so this, uh, this of course, is, is what sustains it, is the goodness, the kindness, the generosity within the human heart that, has, that allows this, this particular ancient convention to survive and still be of great use in the world. And we can see here in, in uh, the UK how much the growing interest in Buddhism and uh, meditation, practice of Buddhism, Buddhist customs, people, the Europeans are quite fascinated, quite uh, interested in the customs even, in the, and as well as the practice of the Dhamma. So this, uh, when, when one gets rather negative and cynical about the nature of humanity, because if you uh, read the news, newspapers, uh, you can get a very kind of negative view about the nature of human beings. Uh, because the news is always about what human beings, the bad things they do. 
And so it's easy to become very cynical uh, these days because there's so many, so many, so much bad news, frightening news available on the media. And of course the media is everywhere. It's not just newspapers anymore, but it's, it's ev- in everything, everywhere. But when you reflect as a, as a monk, as a Buddhist monk, you, you recognize another, something more real than the negativity of the present time or the political system or the, the society you're in. You're, you're reaching on a deeper level and this is what, what the Katina ceremony represents, the, the generosity, the goodness, the kindness of human beings, human individuals. And of course, this, is, this isn't confined just to Buddhist countries. We can see it operates in Europe, in America, everywhere, because uh, the teaching of the Buddha is greatly appreciated almost everywhere now. We get invitations to, to uh, countries far, far away <clears throat> that you wouldn't think had the least interest or knowledge of Buddhism, but there, there's, it seems to be almost everywhere. Because the... <laughs> yes, I was even invited to Brazil yesterday. <laughs> and this is... Uh, this is you know, one of the, this is like, it, it lifts the heart to recognize this, this basic goodness in the human, in, in our humanity. And of course, the celebration today, the Royal Katina, sponsored by uh, King Pumipolan, the King of Thailand, and this is celebrating also his 80th birthday. And uh, I attended a celebration in last May in Bangkok, in for celebrating his 80th birthday, and uh, he's had 60 years as the king of Thailand and 80 years uh, as a as the uh, as the as a birthday. You know, 80 years is quite a long time to live, and especially if you're a king. <laughs> and uh, the king of Thailand has managed to live and be of use to his people through. A very difficult time, you know, where uh, Thai society has had to go through a, a very rapid uh, and sudden change uh, in the past 50, 60 years, just the change uh, that that society's had to experience from being an agricult- rice-growing agricultural society to a modern industrial one. And of course, all the problems that arise with change and uh, influence and pressures from, from everywhere, from every which way. So we want to extend our, our appreciation and respect to uh, King Pumipon and uh, celebrate his, his uh, good parami, his virtue, in having had been able to uh, live as a, as a leader, as a king, as Keep a, a, uh, practicing the Dhamma and having an influence on all of us because uh, I went to Thailand in 1966. I was there before as a tourist, just as passing through really, but 1966 I went there to live and uh, of course the, 
um, at that time, the king of Thailand, his children were small, uh, little children, and uh, the king and the queen were both young and beautiful. <laughs> and uh, over the years, we see the aging process. And now the king is 80 years old. <laughs> and his children have grown up, and they have produced children. So this is, uh, I've had the opportunity in my lifetime to witness this. Uh, my connection to Thailand since 1966. And of course, uh, I had very fortunate opportunity in Thailand because uh, I met the uh, Lung Po Cha, Tanajan Cha. Uh, and he was, at the time that I went to Thailand, he wasn't very well known. Only in uh, Ubon, uh, the, in the Isan, but not in Bangkok or amongst anyone I knew in, in uh, Bangkok. And he was uh, becoming increasingly well known in the northeast part of Thailand. But through all kinds of serendipitous experiences that led me into meeting this wise master, was it fate? Was it destiny? <laughs> One can only guess, but anyway, it happened. And, uh, and I've always been, uh, I've been very grateful for that, meeting such a wise human being. And, and also having the opportunity to live with him and learn from him during the first uh, 10 years of my monastic life. And so this is the 30th year in uh, England and um, it doesn't seem like a very long time, but it, you know, 30 years does uh, have the sense of being quite a long period of time. But looking back is very different than looking forward. When I look forward 30 more years, I think, oh my God, 30 more years. When I look back 30 years, I think, what happened? Now I'm an old man. When I came here, I was just a middle-aged The temple also, we're very fortunate, and uh, it's not finished, as you can see, the floor is, uh, this is a temporary uh, cover-up uh, because they've, they've been very busy trying to repair the uh, underfloor heating system. Uh, and this is, uh, this is, it seems to take a long time, so many, Ajahn Majiro and, and uh, the members of the EST, uh, Mr. Sudantum, a Bayakun and uh, people like that have really put the pressure on to get it done. Uh, we were hoping it would be all ready for this occasion, but uh, anyway, it's uh, it's on its way. And so, uh, it, and it because we're, this is the first time we've been able to use this temple since when for quite a few months, anyway. It's an interesting time too when you witness uh, the cultural mixture, the, the uh, Asian, the European, the, the Thai, the, the British, uh, and all other nationalities. We, we live in a society now, multicultural, multi-religious. And so it's not a time where we can look back and try to hold on to a particular uh, culture or uh, go back to an age where everything was just 
you know, certain and, and fixed in, in our own small group because the, the planet Earth now is not very big and it's very, the media, mass media is very quick and we, we know what's going on in countries like Burma when they're having a revolution or anywhere else. The news uh, is spread immediately and it's very easy to travel through, from one place to another. So this brings the human beings from different cultures, different races, different religions together in ways that sometimes are very confusing because uh, the conditioning process is such that, that we become very conditioned to see things from our own particular uh, viewpoint. So when we travel, when we, most of you who are, are from abroad, from another country, coming to live in, in England, uh, and we bring our own values, our own expectations, assumptions with us, into a society that has slightly different ones. So we, we, we find ourselves uh, either very critical or frustrated or confused by the difference of way people act or react or how they speak or what they value. And so also the, this uh, sense of stress is, has increased in human consciousness. Now this word, English word stress, uh, I don't remember it being very, you know, com such a common word, say, 40 years ago. I mean, it was used, but it wasn't exactly how one described one's life. And now you hear that all the time, you know, people anywhere. You go to Bangkok, there's stress. You go to Paris, there's stress. You go <laughs> London, it's all about stress. People are experiencing stress. And stress especially in these very modern affluent situations where we've got all these wo this wonderful technology that should make life less stressful and easier for us. But now you hear things like road rage and people, you know, going absolutely crazy because their computer won't work and, and you know, committing murder over <laughs> some trivial action. Uh, that's due to being frustrated in some way. And of course, now we, we, we're very much aware of the environment also, we're more than ever. This idea of, of uh, the green movement and climate change and the, the anxieties that this brings, pollution of the planet. We're now very much aware that our presence on this planet has created endless other problems. Uh, for all creatures that live on this planet. Where, say, 40 years ago, that wasn't particularly, um, not many people were aware of that. Uh, we, I wasn't, certainly, 40 years ago. Uh, just thought, you know, the, there's plenty of room, plenty of space, plenty for everybody. And also, uh, being brought up in the United States, where you have this very, this sense of continuous progress, Everything is going to get better and better all the time. You know, just things get better and then they get better and then they get better than that. And it just gets better and better. And of course, where does it stop? Uh, and this, this idea of progress, one is expecting a lot in one's life that everything will improve and get better. So contemplate that, you know, the, in, in one's own 
expectation or assumptions about uh, yourself or the, the world that you're living in. This attitude of progress. Now, in, uh, when I went to live in, uh, with Lung Po Cha in Ubon, then, of course, the, he was very much pointing to the way things are. And this is uh, the, the Dhamma, this Pali word Dhamma, uh, means the truth of the way it is. It's the natural way things are. It's not about ideals about how things should be uh, if everything were perfect, but it's about the way it is. And this was uh, quite a revelation to me, even though I've been through the universities, studied uh, in graduate school and all the rest, I had never really awakened to the way it is, because uh, culturally I'm programmed for progress. I want everything to get better and better and better and better. But by the time I was 30, by the time I ordained, I was realizing that it wasn't going to be that way. When I was 20, I had great hopes that by the time I was 30, everything would be better. But by the time I reached 30, it wasn't better. <laughs> it was much worse. <laughs> and it was a disappointment, you know, because uh, I was expecting something else than, than, than what I was experiencing. Then in living in uh, these forest monasteries in northeast Thailand, in, the, in those days, back in the, in the 60s, they were very, very primitive places. You know, they had no luxuries, no electricity. Uh, everything was, you know, just like a thousand years ago, probably. It was, it, uh, one, you just slept on a grass mat and you, you even dyed your robes in, uh, in uh, jackfruit dye and, and you had to pump water from the wells and, and everything was going back to an age that I had never experienced. Being brought up as a city boy in, uh, in America, I always lived in cities. Electricity was just, you know, what you expected from life and switch on the lights and flush toilets and refrigeration and <laughs> all the rest. And then in, in the forest monastery, of course, there was none of this. But what the great uh, uh, ability of a teacher like Ajahn Chah was that he had, even before I could really understand the, the language well enough, he had the ability to get me to look at my own mental states. And, you know, the, this, this sense of disappointment or, or suffering that I would create in my mind. And, uh, you know, at, at the I was 33, 33 years old at the time, the disappointment I felt about myself, about my own experience of life. And uh, also just uh, trying to adjust and fit into a different cultural situation, learn a different language, different climate, different everything. There was always uh, a sense of frustration uh, and tr trying and, and uh, never feeling quite certain, never feeling, uh, you know, feeling very insecure all the time because I never really was uh, aware of whether I was doing it the right way. Because in Thai, Thai 
a very, they've uh, developed a high level of etiquette. And Americans, uh, we don't, we, our level of etiquette is very low, <laughs> you may have noticed. <laughs> We're quite coarse. <laughs> so then uh, trying to fit into to this Thai forest monastery was, uh, you felt so clumsy and so kind of inadequate. And yet with that, uh, Ajahn Chah had the ability to get me to look at my own feelings. Now that was also a, a revelation, to be able to look and just observe how I felt. I'd never done that before. I did, you know, I would, I would react to my feelings. I certainly was a feeling enough person. But usually if, the, if I was happy or sad or feeling safe or insecure, what, I would just uh, follow it or ignore it or dismiss it or resist it or indulge in it. There was never this sense of observing it, of witnessing it. And this is what I learned very quickly from Ajahn Chah, observing that I how I felt. Now he was not asking me to feel any certain way. You know, it wasn't that he was intimidating me and saying I should be grateful and happy and, and be a happy uh, monk. He was encouraging me to honestly a look and observe what frustration was like, what insecurity is like, what, uh, you know, disappointment, what self-aversion is like, self-criticism. And this was like a, a, this was an awakening of, to me, you know, in the sense of I started looking rather than just reacting. And that was, that was quite, uh, a, a, that was a very powerful insight because from that point then, one can learn from one's life, whatever way it goes or moves. If you don't know, if you, if you can't look at yourself and, and observe, then you, you are merely a victim of your emotional habits, your feelings of the moment. And there's no, you know, until you're willing to, to stop and look and observe. Now this observing is, is looking at it in terms of Dhamma, not in terms of it being right or wrong, good or bad. So that was because, uh, you know, we have the culture that I'm from is a very, it's based on, on the ideals of how things should be and uh, what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's true and what's false. That's, that's the conditioning that I had to, to experience life. It was always very judgmental, and it's the critical faculty uh, that, that one had developed through the culture and through the educational system. What I learned in Ubon Rajatani in Thailand, in a, in a Thai forest monastery, was the Dhamma, the way it is. And the way it is is very simple. All that arises ceases. Uh, all conditions are impermanent. So this is a statement not to be grasped, but to be reflected upon. And then this idea of progress, I began to see, was, was an assumption I had that only led to disappointment, because progress is impermanent. It doesn't get better and better, better and better, better and better. It gets better, and then it gets to the best, and then after it's reached the best, 
it gets worse. <laughs> and that's the way it is. <laughs> but the, the awareness of this is, is where we develop and, uh, and cultivate wisdom, the wisdom faculty. So even having been in, in universities and so forth, I never developed any wisdom through it. I had opinions and views and ideals, but I, I certainly hadn't developed any wisdom through, through my uh, studies. And, uh, and but it was in this very simple monastery, very primitive place, uh, that I actually began to, to develop some wisdom and understanding of life, of myself, or of the Dhamma. And so I began to really, you know, to feel this inc incredible gratitude because uh, it was, it was actually my experience as a monk has been, is, has been a, an experience that I am incredibly grateful for because it, uh, you know, it's a, an opportunity that, that was not particularly available to me in, the, in my own uh, cultural milieu. You know, this was not a possibility for someone like myself in terms of my own uh, family or cultural background. And I never thought of becoming a Buddhist monk. It was not part of expectation. I thought of becoming a Catholic monk. That was the possibility. <laughs> but not a Buddhist monk. <laughs> And it never seemed, you know, I'd, I'd be living 30 years in England as a Buddhist monk was, uh, you know, never entered my mind. And yet this is what's happened, you know, this, the, because of the Dhamma, of the practice of the Dhamma, things happen in a way that in your conditioned view, your own expectation about yourself, your own self-views or cultural attitudes, these are not to be trusted because they're not, that's not the way it is. That, that life has its own momentum and we, you know, if we open to it and, and understand it, then we can flow with the, the way things are, with the Dhamma. We're no longer trying to control and hold things according to what we want or what, the way we think they should be. We can actually understand and then flow with life in whatever way it presents itself with, with uh, on its uh, progress towards the best and its uh, degeneration towards the worst. So now on the age level I'm on the worst side getting <laughs> the, the signs of age are uh, so apparent now you can't miss them and no way I can I can possibly conceive myself as being middle-aged anymore. And when I was in uh, uh, Italy, they were telling me that now in Italy, I was there for the Catina, that in Italy they definitely regard 73 as old. And you're not really old till you're 73, they said. <laughs> That's what they told me. 
So now I can, I can really just content myself with being really old. But it, but the, <laughs> and of course it's not going to get any better on the physical level. Is, but if, if you have the right attitude, then it's not, a, it's not suffering. One is not creating or expecting it to be otherwise. The suffering isn't about being old, but about not wanting to be old, if you are. <laughs> you know, and this is, this is wanting something that you don't have, or not wanting what you have. Uh, and this is, uh, this is so clear in the Buddha's essential teaching. One thing that really uh, I loved about living with Ajahn Chah was he, he uh, really taught according to the Four Noble Truths. Now even though we all assume that in Theravada Buddhism the Four Noble Truths is the basic teaching, and you go to any Buddhist conference and they include all the, you know, the Tibetans, Mahayana, everything, everybody admits the Four Noble Truths is the basic teaching. And in Theravada they all say Four Noble Truths is the basic teaching. But I never see it being used very well. You know, I remember Buddhist society in London, they used to, when they had a beginner's class, beginner's Buddhism, they would invite me. Because <laughs> Four Noble Truths is basic Buddhism for beginners. And, uh, and, they, and I guess I thought I was a kind of continuous beginner. And then, and in a way that's true. And then, uh, then the Thursday class was always called beginner's meditation. And then the Thursday class was always saying, we've been beginners for years now. <laughs> Can't we call it something else? <laughs> I think they call it uh, something else by now. But this, uh, this teaching of the Four Noble Truths is, it's, it's a very, you know, on itself, it's, you know, you can memorize it in no time. It doesn't take much to kind of read it and, and get some idea and, and some intellectual understanding of it. But to really make it work for you is something else. It's a lifetime's endeavor. And this, uh, this I can vouch for. This I've used for all these 40 years. This uh, basic, this has my, this is my, been my practice putting this investigating experience uh, with these four, four noble truths. Now the, you know, we think of the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha or suffering or unsatisfactoriness. And of course if you're conditioned to, uh, with the progressive American mindset, uh, you just want to get rid of dukkha because it's so, something wrong. If there's suffering, there's something wrong and you've got to set it right. So you're trying to get rid of dukkha. And of course the, the materialist uh, society is one of always seeking happiness, trying to find happiness and security as your, you know, how you want to live your life. If you find the right person, have the right job, the right house, everything is right then you feel happy and secure. But do you? Even if you get all that, that you want, do you really? Is it, is it enlightenment? 
is it really sustainable happiness? Or just that, that idea of wanting something it becomes so addictive that we, even when we get everything we want, we still want more than that. And so I remember uh, before I became a monk, I kept observing how my desires, no matter how, even if I got everything I wanted, I'd want more than that. And then I began to think, if I got everything, if I was the richest man in the world, the most powerful man in the whole world, the most successful man in the whole world, the best-looking man in the whole world, <laughs> it still wouldn't be enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought, there's no point in pursuing that any further. No, better to become a Buddhist monk. <laughs> and start observing the way things are. Being the knower, uh, that knowing and witnessing of Dhamma. And so this is what the word Buddha really means. It's, it's, uh, it's not just about the Lord Buddha of ancient India, but it is a word meaning awakened consciousness. It's all of us are conscious entities sitting here in this temple at this moment. We're experiencing consciousness. But how many are really awakened to it? Uh, you know, we live in our own world, our own fears and loves and hates and desires. Our own uh, uh, hopes and expectations. Our dread, our fear of the future, our worries and problems. And so, when we, when we get caught in that, then, that's, then there is this sense of stress. Our life is stressful. Because modern life, even though it's supposed to make life easier and more comfortable, and it does in many ways, it makes life so much more comfortable. Life, you know, it's much more comfortable here than it was in Wat Pa Pong in 1966. <laughs> I have this nice cootie, nice... <laughs> I have uh, underfloor heating. We didn't have, we didn't need underfloor heating in Thailand. <laughs> but still, the um, the suffering then is isn't because of 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 luxury or of deprivation, but of the way we think. If we're not, if we aren't awakened to the way it is, if we aren't awakened to Dhamma, then we we merely are caught in our desires. Uh, expectations, hopes, um, resentments, fears, and so forth. And that's the sankara, the, the sangsara uh, that the Buddha pointed to, this, this whirlpool, this vortex of changing conditions that just seems to go on and on endlessly. And when one thing ceases, another begins. So it, it seems to just reinforce itself, and even the momentum gets faster and faster. In a modern society, of course, everything moves much more quickly than, say, in, in Northeast Thailand 40 years ago, if you're living in the, in, the, in the Thai forest monastery. There they were more kind of just the, the natural rhythms of life and the seasons. You know, the old rice-growing cultures of Asia uh, they they lived according, you know, they, they judged things by the seasons, when it was time to plant rice or harvest rice. And 
they had the monastery. So there was a kind of natural rhythm and a kind of elegance to life in uh, northeast Thailand, in the rural areas, because it, it had, they had the, you know, if you had a good monastery like Wat Pong, where Ajahn Chah lived, and, and of course he had a tremendous uh, influence on the uh, towns and villages around, so, and a good influence, bring out the better qualities in the, in the people. And so life, even if it wasn't luxurious and quite primitive, it had its own, it, was, it wasn't stressful. I can't say that it was a stressful life. Uh, it wasn't as comfortable, <laughs> but it wasn't stressful. Now co contemplate that, what, when, when stress is, and I'm using this word stress now, is this the mental state we create. This always this tension that that is partly you know it's not just you something wrong with you but it's the society the time everything is affecting us now with the speed and the the media and the information and the the way things are moving the population the changing conditions uh, it all seems to everything seems to move more quickly more rapidly. So this is uh, also one of the reasons why there is such a growing interest in Buddhist meditation that just wasn't hardly existing 40 years ago in the Western world, in Europe or America. And, uh, and as, as the stress increased, more and more Westerners started seeking ways of dealing with stress. And of course, one of the skillful ways is Buddhist, um, following Buddhist teachings. Because this word stress can also be used for a definition of the first noble truth. Usually we use the word suffering, uh, English word suffering to describe dukkha, or it can be, you can use stress. And, uh, and so, taking stress Taking the word of stress and making it into a noble truth. You think, what's noble about stress? You know, I've I come here to find out how to get rid of it. You know, I hear Buddhists are supposed to be very peaceful. And, uh, and, I, and my life in London is so stressful that I come here to find peace. And, and then they talk about stress as a noble truth. <laughs> I've got plenty of stress in London. <laughs> And so that's another way, and this is like a reflection. Why, why did the Buddha call it noble? The, there is, and it's not taking suffering or dukkha or stress as, in itself as noble, as a noble condition. But it's a noble truth. And what that means to me is that to, to really understand stress, you have to look at it. You have to receive it. You have to rise up. Now when, when I do this, when, I, when I'm really looking at, at my stress, the stress I feel, I have to let go of my own habits of wanting, blaming it on somebody or wanting to get rid of it and just accept it. It feels like this. Now that is what I call a noble practice of nobility, where you rise up to the occasion. Uh, you know, emotionally you may not feel it. You feel it's due to somebody else or 
uh, all kinds of your own because you're not good enough or whatever, you can always blame it on somebody or something. But that's not noble. It's not noble to go around blaming the world for your suffering or yourself. But in this sense of nobility of acknowledging, it's like this, stress, this feeling of stress, tension, unhappiness, uh, dissatisfaction is like this. You see? So that's, that's why I use this word this uh, sense of, in, in the Buddha call it an Aryan, Aryan truth. And, and that Aryan means in general terms is uh, noble. So I notice in my own life, in, when, you know, I can be very uh, unnoble. If I just follow my feelings of the moment, I can complain and whine and win just like anybody. And... Uh, <laughs> Blame. I get very good at blaming everybody, everything, if I want. But I know that that's not the that's not dhamma. That's not the way things are. And so, because of of my contemplation of these four noble truths and putting them into practice, then it becomes increasingly apparent. You know, it's so obvious now after forty years that you can't see why, why everybody can't see it. <laughs> and it's as plain as the nose on your face, as they say. And, the, and yet, it, we do need to remind ourselves because the world we live in is very intimidating and very hypnotizing. And we're easily pulled and, and pressured and uh, into all kinds of things, just through the way we are conditioned and through the society and the present speed uh, and, and uh, pressures of modern life. But then, with all this, is one can, one can criticize modern life, or, but there's, you know, there's plenty of critics around. Read the newspapers, read the journals, <laughs> listen to the news, and you'll find all the critics very active in this country. So it's not a matter of criticizing, but of awakening. And this is, this is the, the, the aim and the goal of Buddhist monastics, is awakened awareness to the Dhamma. So in this, uh, you know, having a, a monastery like, like this, uh, Amavati, it is a a, a center, a focus, a physical, geographical focus, where this kind of teaching, this kind of pointing is, is uh, encouraged and appreciated. You know, like today, and the generosity that supports Amravati, Chitters, and all our monasteries, because there is a sense of, of recognition uh, and uh, of the value that this kind of practice brings into our lives. It's something, you know, that we, we, we recognize in an intuitive, in a intuitive way. My life as a Buddhist monk then has been one where, it, you know, I've had an opportunity to, to use this, this practice. And then Ajahn Chah, his emphasis on the Four Noble Truths was so, so clear, so helpful, 
that I've never felt any need to go anywhere else. You know, it's not, I've never felt a lack that somehow I was missing out on something uh, in this, because of I was in this particular tradition. It's easy to blame a tradition or to get critical of it because any tradition has its flaws and its imperfections. Uh, just like any other condition. There's no condition, no convention that is perfect. And, and if you find one that's perfect, it's not going to stay that way. <laughs> it, re that's, it reaches its peak and then it gets imperfect. So we're not seeking perfection from the conditioned realm, you know. Our expectation has changed from trying to find happiness and, and uh, security in that which is basically insecure and impermanent. And we're finding through awakening, through mindfulness then, that which is stable, here and now, all the time. Now this, this stability becomes apparent as you investigate these Four Noble Truths. It's, uh, it's real, it's not, it's not a kind of precious kind of concentrated state where you're, you feel stable and fixed only through controlling of a situation. It's the kind of stability you recognize that's with you all the time. You know, it's not, it's not dependent on how well you feel or whether it's peaceful or noisy or everything's going well, or everything's falling apart. And so this, this is what we call the, the recognition of the cessation of conditioned phenomena. When we let go, when we see the, when we have the insight into letting go of our, of these grasping habits of holding and controlling, then we really appreciate letting go. Then we awaken to the deathless reality, to Dhamma, to ultimate truth. It's real. It's not a, it's not some kind of a uh, special state that is that can be disturbed. It's just not recognized. You know, if we're caught up in the vortex and momentum of of our own emotional habits, desires, and fears, then we you know we're we're caught in that vortex. We're just going around with it. But once we step, when once we observe that vortex, that movement, that whirlpool of emotions and thoughts and sensory uh, experiences, then we begin to realize or recognize what they call Nibbana, which is non-attachment. It's reality. It's not a, a, a rare state. Uh, it's not doesn't depend on conditions uh, supporting it. It's always here and now and recognized through awareness. So today I've, I'll offer this as a reflection and uh, again express my gratitude, appreciation for all the uh, generosity, kind wishes, good thoughts from uh, Yom Nam Tip and Linda Liu who've sponsored this katina and all of you who've participated, so many have, have given themselves to uh, uh, making this possible. 
uh, Sister Bodhi Paula took on her her uh, the ch- the chore of trying to clean up this this place. It was an absolute mess, and make it uh, worthy uh, worthy of this event. And uh, Ajahn Majiro and many others have been very busy, uh, you know, trying to coordinate and make all this this possible for us, so we could come here and enjoy this day. And then, of course, the incredible uh, Donna, the food. Uh, this has always been, you know, such a, a uh, uh, you know, there's never been a problem about food in this country. <laughs> when I, before I came here, I thought, who's going to feed me? Am I going to live in England? You know, they don't know anything about this, and, and I can't have any money, I can't go and buy a pizza or anything. I can't even grow cabbages and cook my own food. You're really helpless as a Buddhist monk. You're totally helpless. <laughs> I think, why? You know, I wouldn't mind just growing my own, having my vegetable garden and just have my, grow my own cabbages. But no, that's forbidden. <laughs> why? And it's because because it, it connects the Sangha, the monastic Sangha, to the lay community. This is, the, this is the, the, the compassion of the Buddha. So it's easy, you know, for someone like myself, it'd be easy to become a hermit. Because I am quite independent. And, and I wouldn't mind growing my own food and cooking, and that's not a problem. Uh, but instead, because of the the, uh, the the commitment to this way of life, I've made myself totally dependent. And then, of course, in Thailand, you can take a lot for granted because it's part of the culture, part of the whole ambience of that society to offer f- food to the monks. But here in England, it's it's very new kind of expectation, and yet I've never gone hungry one day in 30 years here. And uh, so that says a lot, you know, for, you know, when people, people uh, criticize uh, Britain or Europe or whatever, it's the same, goodness of heart, isn't it? It's common to every human being, everywhere. Whether they're Muslims or Jews or Christians or, or Theravadan Buddhists, Mahayana Buddhists, Hindus, whatever. Buddha was pointing at a universal, a universal reality, not towards just some kind of ethnic attitude. And that's why uh, Buddhism speaks to us now in a, in a modern society, so far removed from ancient India, uh, you know, 2,550 years ago. Very different, very, you know, the, the whole thing has changed so much, expectations and opportunities and and the technology political systems economic and that but basically the buddha was pointing to the truth of the way it is which is not about cultural uh, cultural uh, preferences but universal reality uh, so i offer this for your contemplation and reflection